Hi, and welcome to the Post-Acute Point of View, our discussion hub for healthcare technology in the out-of-hospital space. Here we talk about the latest news and views on trends and innovation that can impact the way post-acute care providers work. And we take a look at how technology can make a difference in today's changing healthcare landscape in both home-based and facility-based care organizations and the lives of the people they serve. Today, we hear from Naveen Gupta, Senior Vice President of Home and Hospice Division for Matrix Care, and his special guest. Let's dive in. My name is Naveen Gupta, Senior Vice President and Division Head for the Home and Hospice Division here at Matrix Care. Welcome again to another episode of the Post-Acute Point of View. Today, I am joined by Seth Joseph. Seth is the Managing Director at Summit Health. He is a corporate strategist and innovation executive and has really a deep passion for healthcare and technology with a vision for platforms and solutions that really help everyone in playing a role in various care settings, including physicians, pharmacists, payers, and really the a vision to see coordinated care and communication happening more effectively, leading to better outcomes. Seth also leads strategy for Swift and innovative wound care technology company. Welcome, Seth. Thank you so much, Naveen, for having me. And I'd love to turn this around and have you speak for me because you're going to do a better job than I will for sure. <laughs> Seth, thanks for reminding me that we actually did meet at Home Care 100. And really, you know, just a series of coincidence as I was chatting with your colleague and happened to read your article that was published in Forbes around the EHR is dead, long live the EHR platform. And it was fascinating because even Within Matrix Care, we've been thinking about and envisioning the future of electronic health record systems and mulling over what does a smart EHR or an intelligent EHR look like. And so I certainly want to pick your brain on your article. It was provocative in many ways, but very, very thoughtful. But before we do that, many times in our podcast, we begin with wanting to really allow our listeners to get to know our guests a little better. So Seth, talk to us about your origin story, your formative years, and your early career leading up to Summit Health and then SWIFT. Sure. Absolutely. Happy to. Well, Naveen, let me ask you, are you familiar with the show, The Office? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So my origin story is about as boring as it gets, <laughs> um, but it does play an important role. So my professional career actually started out almost precisely at Dunder Mifflin. I don't want to give the company a hard time, so I'm not going to say what it was, but okay. uh, essentially it was selling paper and toner and different office supplies. And I, in fact, was a salesperson there. Certainly wasn't cool enough to be a gym, hopefully not crazy or interesting enough to be a Ryan, maybe quirky enough to be a Dwight. I don't know. But what I, I found out about myself, a few things. One, I was I was surprisingly adequate at sales, but perhaps more importantly, I found that I didn't enjoy it. And so that steered me one direction. And more importantly, while I do believe in the saying that there are no uninteresting jobs, only uninteresting people, I found for me, if I was going to be spending you know, the better part of my waking hours, 40, 50, 60, whatever it is, hours a week doing something in my life that I wanted it to have more meaning for me 
than selling paper and toner. And so I knew I was interested in business. I went back to graduate school for business and really took the opportunity there to try and figure out what I was going to be interested in, where I could have an impact. So curiously, I decided to stay on the business route, the for-profit route, come yeah. from a family of nonprofits. Uh, my, my father was in Peace Corps. My brother was in Peace Corps. My sister-in-law was in Peace Corps. And my, her husband, my brother-in-law, also in Peace Corps. So I'm, I'm somewhat the outlier. I did want to have an impact, but I also believe in capitalism and I believe in the power of capital to do good. And so leaving business school, I, I knew I was interested in, in healthcare. And I found a great role at CVS Health, joining a small strategy and innovation group mm -hmm. on the pharmacy side of the business, getting to evaluate, analyze, and bring in technology. Anything and everything that touched pharmacy workflow in the pharmacy system is, is what we started to look at. Got great experience there, cut my teeth, learned from some phenomenally bright leaders, and that's a an incredibly well-run organization, wound up moving up to the take on a strategy role uh, on the PBM side of the house, and mm -hmm. then had the opportunity to join a company called Shorescripts, which I know from having listened to your last podcast, uh, yeah. you just had a couple of guests on. And so spent eight and a half wonderful years at Shorescripts where I played a few different roles, but settled into a strategy role and leading a strategy team there. And what we found to be relatively unique at Shorescripts was that it was a network effects driven business, meaning that the more doctors and EHRs we could bring on board, the more value we created for the pharmacies and the PBMs. But to get the doctors and the EHRs, we had to bring on the pharmacies and PBMs first. And so there was this constant set of questions that was really fascinating around how do you solve for this chicken and egg or cold start problem? How do you manage at times conflicting or competing interests amongst different participants on the network? Yes. And it was just this tremendously fascinating place. And I think Shorescripts has done amazing work, would be pleased to chat about it. But my sort of origin story is that I learned about the power of network effects and platform business model thinking while at Shorescripts. And I've just continued my journey and believe that there are enormous opportunities to do good in healthcare from companies that employ platform concepts to bring together different groups of users to exchange information or services, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Seth, fascinating story. I'm pleased that you did exit the paper business, number one. You know, we, the industry needs thoughtful leaders like you, good strategy thinkers. And some of my background is in telecommunication and, and in security. And hmm. several industries have matured at a much faster clip than healthcare. And so to have folks that are committed to healthcare and technology and the passion to keep evolving that, particularly from a platform thinking perspective, is super refreshing. So it really makes it interesting, Seth. So let me begin. In your article, you trace the last 15 years and the adoption of EHR from sort of its first-gen paper-based replacement systems to getting much widely adopted. But you also say that EHRs are a leading cause of physician burnout and in many ways have had unfulfilled promises, including has added risk in the process. 
share with us why do you think EHRs continue to be a source of friction? Uh, may I even say, you know, really an unfulfilled promise? Absolutely. To track that back and think about the promise of EHRs and where we are now, you know, important to note, just as you said, in healthcare, we've been at many times decades or more behind other sectors. So, you know, in 2009, in our daily business life, we had sophisticated enterprise resource planning tools. We had CRMs, we had advanced technology in virtually every sector, but healthcare delivery, where technology played a role and improved productivity. We also had new ways of connecting. We had Facebook, smartphones were were starting to become ubiquitous. Yes, We were getting comfortable ordering things online from Amazon. And yet we still had physicians and hospitals who are practicing medicine on paper. I mentioned starting my my healthcare career at CVS Health. I was there 2007 through 2009. And I could tell you even back then, the data they sat on was tremendous. They had technology and analytical horsepower that could identify gaps in care, adherence issues, and more. And if they could deliver the interventions themselves through their network of pharmacists, for instance, they were in good shape. But anytime they had to interact with doctors, they were at a loss. If they wanted to conduct a medication therapy management session with a Part D beneficiary and wanted to or needed to request clinical notes from the doctor, they were out of luck. So in many respects, we had 21st century technology, analytics, and insights already in healthcare. We had it virtually everywhere to go outside the four walls of a physician practice, a hospital, or in our language, a skilled nursing facility, a home health agency, a hospice, et cetera. They were, unfortunately, were still practicing in the 20th century, or I should say using 20th century technology. So we had a last mile problem. And healthcare economists and researchers understood the potential for what we could achieve with a fully digitized connected healthcare system. The promise of care coordination, the promise of closed loop referrals, population health management, evidence-based medicine practiced at scale. And of course, the promise, for instance, of connectivity from doctor's offices and labs to local and state health departments for public health purposes. So this wasn't controversial. Policymakers on both sides of the aisle understood the promise and health IT and EHRs became this rare point of bipartisan agreement. Researchers from RAND estimated that adoption of EHRs could save the healthcare system $80 billion annually. And I believe actually they probably undersold this. And so in 2009, the Obama administration is coming in and facing a pandemic of a different sort, a financial crisis. They asked Congress to put together a stimulus package of shovel-ready projects. One of these projects was the promotion of health technology. There were other aspects of it included, but the foremost component was to promote physician and hospital adoption and meaningful use of EHRs. The program came with a price tag of $35 billion in the form of financial incentives for physicians and hospitals. Now, if we judge it on the adoption part, the program has been a resounding success. EHR adoption levels were under 10% at the time, forecast to grow very slowly. And within a decade now, we've got 90 to 95%, I think, of physicians and hospitals who practice medicine with an EHR. Where I think we've fallen a bit short is the meaningful use 
part. And to be fair, I appreciate you characterizing the article as thoughtful. It's not entirely their fault. EHRs today, at least in the ambulatory environment and acute environment, were primarily built for claims and billing, not for clinical purposes. My brilliant friend, Nico Skivaski, who's the president at Redox, has made the case that EHRs may never have really had product market fit for clinicians, and the federal incentive program really just helped to drag forward adoption before EHRs were ready. So in many respects, what EHRs were asked to do was impossible. They went from billing and coding to fulfilling out 43 functional areas that meaningful use called for. Charting, problems lists, computerized physician order entry, soap notes, lab orders and results, e-prescribing, patient portals, clinical messaging. And so we're talking lots of different functionality. And then we're also talking about the fact that they were sold. There was a rapid market uptake and demand from cardiologists, rheumatologists, dermatologists, hospitalists, primary care, urologists, ENTs, OBs, orthopedists, etc. So lots of different market segment needs. And all of this occurs against a backdrop of selling to customers whose first job is do no harm. Right. So from a software design and workflow perspective, I think that means you need to design conservatively, which frequently means working to the lowest common denominator across clinicians. When you do this across 40 plus different modules, it might lead to a suboptimal experience. And I think if the market was left to itself, it probably wouldn't have adopted these suboptimal solutions. And that's, I want to be clear, it's not a critique. It's just a recognition of kind of how we got to where things are. At the same time, from the clinical perspective, from a hospital or health system, executive and board level perspective, I think everybody saw where the future was going, which was towards EHR. So they saw an opportunity to benefit from these incentives, and it immediately became every healthcare organization's priority to adopt. And so while every clinician of each different specialty may have had their own preferred best-of-breed solution, CIOs were faced with a mandate, get the meaningful use money, get it fast and with confidence, which meant, I think, rather than try to cobble together a bunch of different solutions, most CIOs made the easy choice, which EHR gives us the highest level of confidence in achieving meaningful use incentives. So they went for breadth and rewarded EHR vendors generally who went a mile wide, if only an inch deep. And final piece, and I'm going to stop talking, regarding your point around calling EHRs out for being associated with physician burnout and safety issues, I do think this is true. I didn't do the research or reporting on this. Many others, most notably Kaiser Health News and Fortune, they did an incredible expose that I'd encourage your listeners to check out. Just Google death by a thousand clicks. And again, hopefully what you're getting here is from my standpoint, I'm not trying to demonize the EHRs. I think they behaved pretty rationally. It's just, it was a lot in a really short time frame. Yeah, Seth, you covered quite a bit of ground here. And I think it's been a lot of unintended consequences. I think the intention was right. As you said, there was this thinking of following the, the meaningful use money, which meant compliance to all of these different functional areas that were required. But whether you know, there was a thoughtful understanding if you step back and see, to your point, right, do no harm, what's the best way to drive 
better clinical outcomes. And a large part of that is clinician experience at the point of care, but more importantly, is the ability to be able to have data and timely data at the transitions of care. And that really speaks to interoperability. As you said, the last mile is a challenge. You could have all of the infrastructure in place, but if you're unable to connect the last mile to bring in the data at the transitions of care and improve that handoff process, you're going to have suboptimal outcomes. So, you know, my read of it, just based on, again, your description, it played out in a way that was unintended because of how the federal incentives align. I think that's right. And I do think there were good intentions. And I think that at the time, the program was about as well designed as it probably could have been. It was incredibly thoughtfully put together. The administration sought counsel from industry leaders, technology delivery organization leaders. And I think that at the end of the day, what we've learned in retrospect was perhaps that it was just a bit too much of an ask and too fast of a process or too, too short of a time frame, if you will. Right. And so that's great. I think that's just framing up the context of how you see the EHR evolution there. And you make a sort of a, a second key point where you begin to say EHR are just bad business. And I love that. And I love provocative statements because it, it triggers a dialogue, right? And you talked about just the, the business economics of the EHR business, whether you know, you're looking from a revenue perspective or an operating margin perspective. That's a pretty broad sort of sweeping statement. And so, Seth, does that apply to sort of all EHRs? Are you talking about acute, post-acute, ambulatory settings, you know, EHRs and physician offices? Is there some color to that statement? Well, if you like provocative, I'll be a bit provocative here and, and then and, and then hopefully back it up with some <laughs> with some depth and some flexibility. But to be provocative, in my perspective, it's not so matter so much a question of whether EHRs being a bad business is applicable across all market segments. It's a question of when it becomes applicable Mm -hmm. for all of these different market segments. Mm -hmm. I think acute and ambulatory care are pretty much already there. With 90% plus market penetration, Mm -hmm. the market is saturated. So it's turned from a blue ocean to a red ocean environment pretty quickly. I think that post-acute is behind. I think that based on my understanding, there's still growth to be had, in part because the federal incentives didn't apply to many post-acute care settings. So adoption rates have lagged there. But if so, the more provocative side of me says, look, the fundamental problem that EHRs face is they've almost got a King Midas problem. He, of course, got one wish that everything he touched would turn to gold, which was a revelation until he got hungry. Well, the EHRs, at least in the ambulatory and acute markets, got to soak in $35 billion in federal incentives by being a mile wide, an inch deep. That was their approach. But now they've got to support that mile wide territory, and they're expected to ensure the land is fertile and every square foot of it is lush. That's hard to do when the rain has stopped. And so we see the conundrum they're in, again, as you you mentioned in the article I point out, by virtually every financial metric, 
revenue growth has turned negative. Gross margins are actually okay, but they're declining. But where we see this really is to meet ever-increasing customer requirements and federal certification, their increasing operational spend and R&D, which of course decreases operating margins. Some are trying to grow and stake out their position in the marketplace through acquisitions, which theoretically leads to economies of scale, may be true when compared with some of their smaller competitors, but those acquisitions generally are not proving to be as fruitful as operating their core business. And so we do see this manifest itself financially in the form of lower asset turnover and lower returns to assets. So I think here's where I'll say it's, it's not just ambulatory and acute. When I was at CVS, I recall hearing a new colleague who had deep tech experience from outside of healthcare who came in and said, gosh, a pharmacy system was by far the most complex system environment he'd ever seen, given mm-hmm. all of the clinical, operational, and financial considerations. Well, that's pharmacy. With an EHR, take that and extend it across 40 different modules. Yeah. So look, it's going to be different in ambulatory. It's going to be different in acute, different in post-acute, different in a skilled nursing facility, different in home health. But that's a lot of software and different end user needs to support. And those end user needs continue to evolve, which requires more investment and maintenance costs. Meanwhile, I think every customer views themselves as already having paid for the EHR, and they see different vendors continually coming out with new functions they want. And so they want their EHR to to develop the same functions or also new ones, and for that to be included in what they've already paid for. So I think that ambulatory and acute markets are furthest along, but I, I do see the same types of challenges among EHRs who are providing services in various post-acute, whether again, skilled nursing, home health, inpatient rehab, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, Seth, you know, if, if I summarize, I think your point primarily is around, it's not a matter of the various care settings. I think the EHR adoption, that's growing, right? I think you have the less and less providers that are paper. They're you know, beginning to use some sort of digital asset here, in, in this case, an EHR. But the bigger problem, I think that you're pointing to is this thinking that EHRs are trying to be all things to all people. And you describe that as being mile wide and inch deep. And in one sense, right, the the inability of the EHR to truly fulfill its promise with that sort of charter and mandated. That's absolutely right. And I am really sympathetic to the business that EHRs are in and, and how they've gotten there. I don't think it's easy. I think they have been asked, and in particular, The meaningful use program really required them to be all things to all people. And that's just in general going to be a really tough position to uphold. That's great. So just pivoting a little bit, you know, maybe we'll talk about the the alternative or what threats EHRs can face. And then like anything else, right, we move from the problem domain to a solution domain and we start talking about what does that future really look like? But In part two of the article, you talk about the threats to EHR, you talk about digital health companies in particular, big tech, a lot of the telehealth companies and healthcare being provided in models that are directed directly at consumers there. If we stretch this out, this threat that exists through these various sort of innovation models that are happening to EHR companies, 
How do you see this playing out for EHRs? Good question. You're requiring me to prognosticate to uh, see <laughs> yeah. the future. It's yeah. always dangerous. <laughs> well, so I think the danger there for those of us who have been in industry for quite some time, we've seen some of this activity before. When I was at CVS Health and then Shorescripts, I was there when Google Health and Microsoft Health Vault came out. Yes. And that wasn't, of course, big tech's first foray into healthcare, but the PHR angle was new. There was a lot of excitement. And at the time, there was, of course, a lot of prognostication about the threats that they represented to traditional health tech players and even to healthcare delivery organizations themselves. Of course, we all know how that played out. And so the the trouble with seeing the future is eventually the truth will out. It may not quite look like what you thought of in advance. So I'm always a bit wary of being a Cassandra of foretelling doom. That said, I do think that the data is already here. We can see the decline. We can see some of the challenges. And So where I do see threats and continued challenges for the EHRs, my prediction here isn't, at least I don't think of it so much as radical Mm -hmm. as it is simply applying Occam's razor logic to the situation. Are things likely to continue down this path? That's the, the Occam's razor approach. That's the most logical solution. Or is there something compelling that changes the narrative and trajectory for EHRs? And so to me, it's difficult to see what could happen to somehow change the trajectory itself. Maybe I just lack the imagination. But on the other hand, I see an awful lot of reasons to imagine that the decline for EHRs might continue or even be a bit more precipitous than it has been. If we look at the information blocking rules that have come out and became effective in April of this year, they create real challenges for. EHRs who historically have looked at their user base and in many cases, I don't want to suggest all, but have been have viewed themselves as walled garden, if you will. And now CMS and ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator, are requiring them to open up and to respond to digital parties, to interoperability requests, et cetera, et cetera, to patient requests for access. And of course, that applies not just to the EHRs, but to healthcare providers. Sure. So that's one huge challenge. We could also look at investment levels in digital health. If we look over the past 10 years, there was $35 billion in financial incentives to get doctors to adopt EHRs, and that primarily was paid out in the 2011, 12, 13, 14 timeframe. And at the same time, if we looked at private investment in digital health, it was a billion and it started to ramp up. In 2020, or I'm sorry, I think it was 2019, Rock Health reported maybe eight and a half billion dollars being poured into digital health. In 2020, that number shot up to 14 billion. And in the first, we could ask how much higher could it go? Well, in the first half of 2021 alone, we've seen another 14 billion. So the pace is only accelerating and we're seeing not just investments, but successful exits. GoodRx, Livongo, Oscar, Doximity, the names go on and on. So whereas for years, the question outside of the EHR was, can digital health be a sustainable, profitable business? That question has been answered in the affirmative. The EHRs also face competition from telehealth, which creates a paradigm shift for doctors. 
there's disruption of healthcare systems and healthcare delivery organizations in the form of startups such as Oak Street Health, Iora, Carbon Health. And then we're operating against this context, whereas, you know, virtually every company is struggling right now to hire. And the trend that I see is we've got these large established EHR players. We've got tens of billions of dollars of more private investment coming in. And all of that private investment, all of these new companies, these startups are looking for talent. Yes. And they're looking for experience. Where is that going to come from? Well, maybe the EHR. So there may be a threat of brain drain. So look, I'm not trying to be a Cassandra here and say that the business of the EHR is doomed and they'll all be obsolete in five years. Not at all. It's a question of, it's a predictable decline and the timeline in which that happens and what they might do to change approach. You know, Seth, I think that's fair, right? I think the, in one sense, the moat that EHRs might have had with data, with the information blocking rules that opens that up, the innovation happening at an accelerated pace. You talk about the private investments that are fueling some of this. Although in your article, you do sort of carve a path forward for EHRs and you sort of frame it up in in two aspects. The first of which is really shifting to a platform mindset for EHRs. So really creating an interconnected ecosystem of the best of breed applications. And I think the term used is effectively becoming a headless EHR. And then the flip side of that is creating the API ecosystem that enables this platform to coexist. Walk us through that. If each of our companies were to adopt this, what does that really look like for them? Is, is that, am I accurately describing as you see it, Seth? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are two pieces that I make the case for, and, and there really is sort of two sides to the same coin, but really different considerations to the same coin. So on one side of the coin is the business and strategic. On the other is product and technology architecture. So I'll take the side first that I'm not even close to qualified to speak to (laughs) the product and technology side. And I really encourage any listeners interested to Google headless EHR and Brendan Keeler, who is the author of this fantastic article. So he approached it from a digital health startup paradigm. And he asserted that at some point, as a digital health company becomes more successful, expands the scope of its operations, it inevitably reaches a critical decision-making point where it starts to require EHR-like functionality and for EHR integration. And so the question they face is buy or build. And Brendan makes the point that this is a really difficult choice because building an EHR for all the reasons we've already talked about, it's really, really hard. It's a huge strategic investment. On the other hand, buying an EHR is hard because few EHRs were really purpose-built to support their specific use case or were built with a really open architecture to be super interoperable. And so Brendan proposes this headless EHR, which would be purpose-built with a modern tech stack and an API-first approach. So where the EHR, in this case, 
focuses less on user interfaces and workflow and more on providing core infrastructure and services that others can build on top of. Now, whether those others are specialty EHRs, best of breed, core modules, or the types of solutions that haven't been focused on much by EHRs, such as, for instance, wound care. So that's the product side. The second side is the business and strategic side. And it tackles the question, what is your business model? So what is it you're selling then and to whom? And this is a really big one because while saying you can, you want to become a platform business is easy, it requires a fundamentally different mindset or a mindset shift. Today, most EHRs sell software. That's what helped them grow. That's what helped them succeed in a meaningful use environment or even selling into post-acute care. And now it's become a drag, as we've talked about. There's you know a mile wide, an inch deep to support. So the problem is when you sell software, anyone else who sells software is generally a competitor, or you might look at them as a partner in the interim, but at some point their success becomes a missed revenue opportunity for you. A platform mentality is entirely different. Rather than sell an EHR, the business is, how can we help our users find technology solutions they are looking for and integrate those solutions into a platform that works really well with all of the other solutions they need? How can we help our third-party developers be more successful? How do we facilitate an ecosystem of innovation that grows and adds value on both sides? This approach calls for an EHR to embrace this, a mindset shift from we are the best vendor in the marketplace to we are going to run the best marketplace. And you asked a bit about the the implications we talked about financials. Is this doable? Is this, why do this? And so I'm reminded of the 2001 movie, A Beautiful Mind, about John Nash. Do you recall that one? Absolutely. Beautiful movie. Beautiful movie. And a movie about, as a nerd, I'm really into. John Nash here is the answer. If you know a bit about game theory, you know that it's predicated upon the idea of how to cooperate or compete in a dynamic environment. The idea is that knowledge of another side's payoffs can inform my strategy, for instance. So a simple example, if you and I are playing tennis, having knowledge about you helps me to develop a strategy that is more likely to beat you. So if I know you have a great forehand, I'm going to try and stay away from that and hit it to your back end. If you're really fast, I'm going to try and wear you out by running you all over the court early and hope that you tire early. The whole idea is having knowledge of others' strengths and incentives and payoffs helps us develop an effective strategy. John Nash's equilibrium point that gives us our best chances over time rather than a single best shot. But now let me ask you this. What if you're not Naveen, but you're Serena Williams? Well, if that's the case, I'm out of luck because if you're Serena Williams, then whatever I do doesn't matter. You will overwhelm me every single point, every single game, every single set, match, forever. If you're Serena Williams, you've got what's called in game theory, a dominant strategy. You play it every time. Well, platforms are the Serena Williams to software's Seth Joseph. Platforms win out every time. They win every time. Network effects 
the idea that the platform itself becomes more valuable as the number of users using the platform increases are self-reinforcing. They can lead to faster growth and huge defensibility. They win because of category ownership. When you're not promoting yourself, but the users and the value creation that occurs on your platform, you can become a trusted source and begin to own a category. When you have fixed costs that you can spread over an ever-expanding number of transactions, that lowers transaction costs and can unlock new market opportunities. Because platforms grow every time one of their partners innovates, it's what I would call leveraged R&D. They have leveraged innovation that a technology company can never keep up with. And so this all leads to increasing returns to scale. In addition to supply side economies of scale, there can be demand side. So if you think about software technology companies, they grow their revenue by adding users and on a more limited basis, maybe by selling more into their user base. But this tends to be secondary or tertiary growth lever. With many platforms, network effects leads to the same user finding more and more value from the same platform because of more participants. Now, I'm not a fan of Facebook, but to give you an example, from 2007 to 2020, they grew their user base by 42 times, which is pretty incredible. If they were a software company, they'd have grown their revenue by 42, maybe 84 times. They actually grew it 457 times because of demand-side economies of scale. My own firm's research backs all this up. Seven of the top highest valued companies in the world now employ platform strategies. Across the Fortune 500 platform platform firms see consistently higher growth rates than pure tech firms. They're about two times more efficient in terms of revenue per employee, and they are more profitable by about 50% than their pure tech peers. So the question to me isn't so much whether this is an opportunity to be more financially healthy for EHRs, but really which players start to embrace this approach first and start to realize the benefits. Seth, you know, I think platform thinking, again, is, you know, you've given several examples are not new in sort of other domains and other sectors, right? And I think the best of breed resonates, will resonate with most people because if I'm a provider and I want to use a certain RPM solution, or I want to use a certain wound solution, or I want to use a certain PBM solution, the ability to be able to interconnect and have that choice, A, is going to be critically important, but more importantly, EHR companies effectively welcoming the innovation that might happen to really improve the, not only just the quality and scale of the offerings to the ultimate end user, whether it be the physician or the pharmacist or the clinician, but the ability to solve for problems that single organizations may not be able to solve just because limited by by the scale and economics associated with it. And there are a whole bunch of other things that you touched upon. Seth, this has been super, super helpful. I was going to ask you about EHRs are still a multi-billion dollar business and it's still a replacement market. They are providers that switch out the EHRs and their periods, right? So typically five years, seven years, nine years in which providers go out, look for the next EHR. And I was going to ask you, what are some of the considerations that providers should be thinking about? And in one sense, you've answered that. And you know, you're looking for EHR providers that embrace platform thinking, that embrace an open ecosystem, that embrace interoperability, 
and embrace innovation, even if that's through a third-party vendor or a third-party partner. So this has been a very, very helpful set. We will link your article. We will link to some of the other resources that you mentioned. And what I'm hoping through this and hoping having you on was to trigger the right conversations within organizations to be thinking afresh around EHRs and the evolution of EHRs and what does sort of the next generation of this really look like. And hopefully that will then lead to some, in the years to come, we'll begin to see some of the problems that you've called out mitigated and we'll begin to see more and more organic innovations happening that ultimately drive better clinical, financial, and operational outcomes for providers and everyone involved in the ecosystem. Thank you very much, Seth. Absolutely. Really pleased to be here, Naveen. I hope that your listeners have gotten some value out of this. And I do very much agree, just to share very quickly, I did have an executive at a home health agency ask me about recommendations for a replacement EHR. Now, of course, I my first answer was, call Naveen. He's great. Matrix Care is great. <laughs> But what I also said was very consistent with what we've talked about. There's a process that you want to run. Of course, there are considerations that you have and you should run through those. And after doing that, one of the important questions is who's the most open, flexible partner and who recognizes they don't necessarily have to have the answers for every one of your questions or every one of your needs. But if they can be open and work with and have an open ecosystem approach, a partnership approach, then they're probably a pretty good partner. This is great, Seth. Thank you again. And I'm sure we'll continue the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Naveen. That concludes the latest episode of the Post-Acute Point of View from Matrix Care. We have a lot of guests and topics coming up that you won't want to miss. So be sure to subscribe. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, and if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, leave us a review. To learn more about Matrix Care and our solutions and services, visit matrixcare.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you for listening. Be well, and we'll see you next time.